The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. These are the words of Isaiah the prophet in the late 8th century before Christ, that is the low 700s BC, giving hope in a pretty terrible time for God's people Israel. Our theme here at St Philip's for Advent and Christmas is a line from the carol, O Holy Night, which seems opposite for the year. The weary world rejoices. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and left the soul furl its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. In this series, we're looking at the coming of Christ through the prism of key texts in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. And today, Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. These are a word of hope to a dark and weary world. After years of peace and prosperity from the mid-700s BC, a new and terrifying threat arose in the northeast. An ambitious and capable ruler, Tiglath-Pileser III, came to power in Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq and soon had the superpower on a path of conquest and domination. The leaders of God's people were divided and panicked and even actually encouraged the Assyrians to come down, supposedly to help them. The result of not trusting the Lord, but their scheming was disastrous. At this time, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. Judah in the south, whose capital was Jerusalem, and a breakaway northern kingdom which has most of the tribes, called rather confusingly Israel, whose capital was Samaria. To the north of them was countries like Aram or Syria, and Aram, Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel conspired together to break free from the oversight or the hegemony of Assyria and invaded Judah in the south to get the king of Judah to help them to force a regime change. And the king of the king of Israel, a king of Judah, I should say, appealed to his friend, the Assyrians. Well, this doesn't turn out too well, as Isaiah prophesies to Judah in chapter eight, verse six of Isaiah. I quote: "Because these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, that's Jerusalem's water supply, and rejoices over Rezin, that's the king of Aram or Syria, and the son of Remilia, that's the." king of the northern kingdom Israel. Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. And in 733 BC, the Assyrians did come. They overwhelmed all the northern part of the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, and turned most of it into Assyrian provinces. As 2 Kings 15.29 records, at the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abel, Beth, Mahak, 
Janoash, Kadesh, and Hazor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. Gilead and Galilee and the land of Naphtali are the lands around the Sea of Galilee in the north. Now we need to remind ourselves that the people that this catastrophe happened to were not just any early Bronze Age nation at the time. They were the people that the one true God who'd made all things had chosen and with whom he would made a pact that they would be his people and he would be their God. And this was part of a larger and greater purpose of God to bless the world through them. That's why the events of so long ago are of interest to us today. As we'll see, that the words of Isaiah in this dark time have a resonance today in our weary world. Anyway, at the end of Isaiah 8, Isaiah draws a dark picture of the state of the people after the Assyrian invasion. Verse 22. Then they will look upon, towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. But it's at this point that a remarkable change takes place. The very next sentence, which is Isaiah 9:1, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those that were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. This is talking about those lands to the, on, the, on the west near the sea, round the Sea of Galilee, and to the east. Something's going to happen to them. They've been humbled by God, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And Isaiah goes on to picture a wonderful reversal for this area. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, the Hebrew could also be translated shadow of death, like in Psalm 23, those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then addressing the Lord, the prophet says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Why such joy? Three times Isaiah gives reasons. Three times he says, four. Firstly, it's because the Lord has rescued them and removed the oppressor. Verse four of chapter nine. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The day of Midian was a reference to a great victory, the time of the judges some 500 years earlier by Gideon over the Midianites in the very same area. The second reason is the cessation of war, verse 5. Now the NIV does not have the word for at this point, but it's there in the Hebrew, so I'll put it in. For every warrior's brute, start again, for every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. But it's the third reason for the joy that brings mostly draws our attention. Verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, 
establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the announcement of the birth of an heir to the throne. One who will rule, that is, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will sit upon the throne of David, that is, the throne of the commissioned king of Israel, or Messiah, if you want to call it, who is God's king over God's people and beyond. And it's this king who will establish and uphold that kingdom and throne forever. A new ruler will come to God's people and bring them unending victory and peace. And that is why the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. But it's his name which is most striking. Now, it was common in the ancient world for a king ascending the throne often to take a throne name for himself. That is, a special name, humbly describing his qualities and accomplishments. For example, I read that one Nikwepa, king of Ugarit, the second century millennium, had a name, throne name, with such titles as Lord of Justice, Master of the Royal House, King who Protects and King who Builds. Well, this King Isaiah announces also has a special name, a throne name. It is one long compound name. The phrase in the NIV, he will be called, is literally his name, not his names. His name shall be called. And what is the name, this king, which Isaiah announces? What is his throne name? It's four parts, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's look more carefully at each part of the name. Wonderful counselor. Counselor means someone who gives advice, counsel. This one will be an astonishing, even supernatural perhaps, planner or advisor. This wonderful counselor. Secondly, mighty God. Literally, God, the God mighty one. El Gibor means possibly here that God who is a warrior, a mighty man. That's what warrior uh, might often mean. So it's wonderful counselor, divine warrior. Thirdly, Av Yerad, everlasting father, father forever, for all time. And finally, prince of peace. That is a prince whose reign creates peace. How will you understand this name of the coming king, the child who is born, the son who is given? It may just be four names, like in a row, or it could even be a statement. Like the divine warrior is a supernatural planner, the sovereign father of time is a prince of peace. Whatever we make of it, it's an astounding name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I do not know what Isaiah thought he was referring to when he received this word from God. He may not, as often prophets often don't even fully understand, I think, what God is saying through them. That may have been the case here. We don't know. What we can say is that it didn't happen. There was no such divine warrior, king, who reigned on David's throne, David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. It just didn't happen. There was no wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Yes, the Assyrians did eventually withdraw. Jerusalem, 
was saved. But the Assyrians were soon replaced with a greater power, Babylon, who went further and conquered all the land, exiled the people, and destroyed the temple of the Lord, and killed off the last of the kings of Judah who sat on David's throne. It was the end of the line. Later, under the Persians, the Babylonians themselves were overthrown, and many of the people of God did eventually return to their land, and at a kind of new temple, not as good as the old one, but a new temple was, was built. But there were no more kings who sat upon the throne of David ever again. There was simply no one to whom Isaiah's words of hope and joy could be applied. No one. And so you're left with a choice, a dilemma. Perhaps Isaiah 9 was a false prophecy, empty words. Or maybe there is something else going on here, something much deeper and astounding. May I say this dilemma is not unique to Isaiah 9. Time and time in the Old Testament you'll find the same thing grand, wonderful promise of a great time to come, of a new leader, new temple, a new exodus, peace and life given in the midst of darkness and loss in God's people. But nothing much seems to happen. So often the words are left unfulfilled. Or are they? Come with me to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Matthew has recounted the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, then a time of testing in the Judean wilderness. And now from verse 12 of chapter 4, Matthew describes what we might call the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But listen to the words he chooses to use. I quote from verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put into, into, in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali, remember them? That's the area that was spoken of, which the Assyrians devastated and planted new provinces, to which, John, to which Isaiah speaks in chapter 9. And that's exactly the point that Matthew draws our attention to. Let me read it again going a little further. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Athali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then Matthew adds, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The illusion is unmistakable. The move from Jesus from his hometown in the hill country down into the area around the lake of Galilee, Capernaum, is the fulfillment of Isaiah's words spoken over 700 years previously. Jesus is the dawning of light on those in deep darkness and the shadow of death. 
His coming is the realization of those extravagant promises of hope that we've been looking at in Isaiah 9. And not just the words which Matthew cites, but by implication, the whole of that prophecy. That's often the way the New Testament works. It, it pulls a text, but not just the text. It brings with it, as it were, all that's around it as well. And even though, I think somewhat surprisingly, nowhere in the New Testament are the most interesting part of Isaiah 9 actually explicitly applied to Jesus. I mean that extraordinary name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Although, like me, you may have first heard these words and noticed them, uh, not by reading the Bible, I'm sorry to say, but by listening to the way they're handled in Handel's Messiah, where those words play a crucial role in announcing the coming of Christ. Certainly, the New Testament time and time again testifies that Jesus of Nazareth has come to sit on David's throne and that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The very name Christ, as you know, is just a Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, or Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed king. And it's because of that that Jesus now then makes the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, God's reign, heaven being a way of speaking of God, is at hand and therefore calls upon those, his hearers, in the light of God's coming as king to turn around and repent. Let me make, let me make three points, though, of, of important clarification. One, although the Gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus shows the power of God at work over disease, over the powers of death, over the underworld, and even at one stage over the wind and waves, he is no divine warrior in any conventional sense. As the gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that this anointed king goes to make peace and restore God's people, not by acts of righteous violence, but by himself suffering violence and even death itself. This reality is complete contrast with the expectations of what such a king would do. A contrast not lost, by the way, on Jesus' enemies. Having conspired to his ignominious and shameful death, the chief priests, teachers, the laws, and the elders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, mock Jesus as he hangs helplessly in pain and shame on the cross. And their mocking goes to the point, I'm reading from Matthew 27, verse 41 and 43. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. If Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, it is in a way which is completely contrary to expectations. Two, it is only really after his resurrection from, the de from his dead, the dead, after the death on the cross, that can we say that Jesus enters fully into his kingly authority. It is at the end of Matthew that Jesus now openly says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and sends out his 11 disciples to make all nations his students, to learn from him, to be his disciples, the word used and to obey all his commandments. In other words, he exercises universal rule through his words. 
Peter's words in the first public proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus makes the same declaration in Acts 2 verse 36. In, in Jerusalem, some month or so after these events, drawing attention to the people that this Jesus whom they crucified, well, as he puts it, verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Three, it is not complete yet. Or to put it another way, it is still continuing. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ has further to achieve. You see, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be dethroned will be death itself. Only then will he deliver the kingdom to God the Father, that God may be all in all. And I don't have to tell you, look at the paper this morning, that day is not yet. It's still to come. And when that does come, that's when the words of Isaiah 9 will come to their complete fulfillment. That's when God's big picture purposes will be fulfilled. As Andrew Moody wrote this week, I quote, But the prospect of Jesus' return and the promise of his judgment shows that evil is only a flicker in the endless arc of God's greater story. Goodness will have the final word. Then indeed, the words of the carol will be wonderfully true. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Not that we must simply wait, although we do wait. But even now, the people who walked in darkness can have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. This can be the experience of anyone who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ now. Paul can testify that of his experience when he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. I quote from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For it's for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That by faith is the believer's experience through the Holy Spirit. The light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's the believer's experience now. Waiting, yes, but waiting as those who live expectantly lives of Christian virtue with confident expectations that in a weary world, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end.